Thank you, Ken. Luke chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14 this morning. We have been, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about several different parables that all center around meals and around banquets. And today, we have another one centered around meals and about blanket, oh, about banquets, not blankets. Oh my goodness, I am so sorry. I'm human, it's okay. If you haven't figured that out by now, uh, you... Yeah, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> Luke chapter 14. Um, this, this idea of a meal, a banquet, a, a feast is something that Jesus likes to come to because it's, it's really the center of the social aspect of the society. And it, it is for us today, too. You know, you share a meal. There's a certain level of closeness that develops over food. Uh, that's why Baptists are so good at eating. Uh, well, that and we just like to eat, but we're good at, we're, we have fellowship halls because we know that when you put food on the table and you bring people together, that that is a great way to come together. That is a great way to get to know folks. It's a great way to expand friendships. It's a great way to spend life together. And so we find ourselves once again at the table. This is God's word, Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. So stand with me. And it is God's word, so if you let it, it will change your life. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Pray with me. Father, help us hear your word clearly. Help us know your word fully. Help us obey your word completely. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the world of Jesus' day, you were either in or you were out. People had their in-groups, their social networks where they vied for influence and honor. If you were in, there were many benefits. You'd be invited to the meals and the banquets. You would be welcome at the events with other important people. You could talk with those who matter, officials, judges, friends in high places. If you were in, you were set. But if you were out, that was a whole different story. People who were out were shunned, oftentimes treated as less than human. There were no invitations, no favors, no friends in high places for the ones who were out. Jesus was dining in the house of Pharisee. In fact, this host was a leader among the Pharisees. And there would have been other influential people there too. And part of when in Luke chapter 14, verse 1, where it says that they were watching Jesus closely, part of the reason they were watching him closely was to determine, should this guy be in or out? 
Should we accept him as one of us? Does he belong in with us? And it turns out, no, he doesn't belong in at all. You see, Jesus had a very different kind of view of the world, the way the world should be, than what they saw. They were callous toward this man with edema, and Jesus is the one who compassionately cares for him and, in fact, heals him even on a day when you're not supposed to work. While they are jockeying for positions of honor, trying to take the place of honor at the table, he tells them, no, take the lowest place instead. While they were looking to bring honor by hosting the most prestigious crowd they could, Jesus calls them to host those who not only are out, but who are far out, the blind, the lame, the crippled, and the poor. Jesus' view of honor was completely antithetical to theirs. Their socially accepted view of reciprocated favors and special in-group treatments, Jesus would have none of that. So while Jesus is teaching about the blessings of God, he comes across this idea, something that looks to be a common belief among the Pharisees and Jesus, the banquet of the Messiah, this future day feast that God would put on for those chosen few who would be welcome into his home. And so someone says to him, Blesses everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Oh, you want to talk about the, the coming future reward for the righteous, for the just, when God will bestow benefits and blessings on those who are just. Oh, we can talk about that. I'll tell you what, anybody who is there eating bread in the kingdom of God, that man's blessed. And you would think, well, that's certainly true, right? But he's got the wrong idea. Maybe he thinks, since I'm going to be one of them, I'm blessed. I'm one of the fortunate ones. I'm in. We don't know who he is for Luke's purpose. That doesn't really matter to us. We, we don't know his exact position or belief, why he makes this particular statement. Again, it's not really as important as Jesus' response. We find this often in Luke. Someone that we don't know, they're, they're not named, no motivation is given, they say something to Jesus, and then Jesus hammers home the point. Jesus brings it home, and of course, he brings it home in his favorite method, the parable. Look with me in verses 16 and 17. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. This was no ordinary meal. It was a great banquet. Many had been invited. The scope of the event, coupled with this man's title as Lord, as we'll see later on, shows us that this is a wealthy man. In fact, we would expect this is a very wealthy man. He's achieved such a level of great respect and honor in the community that he is able to invite many people to come and to hold a great feast. Now, there's something that your, your version, this is every now and then, I find that one version will just nail it when others kind of don't. The ESV does it here because it misses a, a critical idea. The NIV says it. The King James kind of says it. The idea here is not that he gives a great banquet, like it just magically appears. It says he prepared a great banquet. You think about preparation, you think about how much effort it would take to go into this, and I think probably the best way that we could see this would be thinking about weddings. Okay, so put yourself in wedding mode for a second. He has proposed, she has said yes, now the real work begins, right? Because there is 
tons of preparation to do for the ceremony. You think about all the things that you have to go through. You got to pick out stationery for invitations. You got you to pick out a location. Where are we going to have this thing? A color scheme. Maybe even a theme to go along with it. You, you, you go with, you start looking at flowers and decorations. Many other details that you have to get worked out. And that's not to even mention who's going to participate in it. Who are the bridesmaids and the maid of honor going to be? Who's, who's the groomsman? Who's going to be, who's going to be the best man? Who are you going to get to officiate the wedding? All these questions about who's going to participate. And not only that, but who else are you going to invite? What family, what friends, what what folks that you know are, are you going to invite to come to this wedding? There's a lot of preparation that goes in. And that doesn't even get to probably the hardest part of all, which is the bride's dress. Carrie, how many times did you have to get fitted and refitted? Uh, you don't know. Anybody, anybody remember? I got, I got fitted twice. There was the first time where I tried on the tuxes to say, okay, this one, this one fits. It's the right color. It works. And then there's the second time where they just make sure it fits before the ceremony. You know, make sure we don't need to loosen it up a little bit or tighten it up or whatever, you know. But, but I rented a tux. I, there wasn't much work to do. There was no stitching. There was no hemming. There was no, there was no, uh, letting out of pants or anything like that. I didn't have to worry about any of that. I just got something and then made sure it fit. And that was it. Not, not so with the woman. I've heard of brides having to get refitted three, four, five times. All of this effort going into this ceremony. You spend months and months and months planning. Thousands and thousands of dollars in some cases to get all this stuff together for 15 minutes. Maybe 20 if you're slow. There's so much preparation that people need to know well in advance. Because you think about it. Even those who are coming have to get all their ducks in a row. I had a friend uh, that's getting married in October. Originally, it was going to be, I think, this month, but it had to get moved back because of the virus, and so they moved it back to October. He, They sent out invitations a couple of months in advance. This person's getting married in Houston, so if we were able to go, we would have to find a way to get to Houston. Not exactly walking distance or even very easy to drive. We could drive. That would take effort and time. Weddings take a lot of preparation, even if you're just going, to make sure you have clothes to wear that are nice, to make sure you know where to go and how you're going to get there and whether you're going to need a place to stay. It takes a lot of time to get these things ready, doesn't it? This banquet would have been like that. It would have taken an immense amount of planning and effort. It was a major affair, and it took time to prepare for it. Invitations would have been sent out well in advance to get a headcount proceeding and to prepare the meal. You don't know what you're going to serve until you know how many you're going to serve, right? And to give time for guests to plan for their appearance. This wouldn't have been a last-minute throw-together of a party, is my point. It was well-prepared, and those who had invited had long ago agreed to come. So finally, after all the preparation, after all the planning, and all of the the gathering of the animals and, and, and getting the, the place ready and preparing the meal, everything. It's time for a servant to go out and deliver the news. The feast is ready. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. Every single one of them. 
Jesus, by this point, Jesus had hooked his audience. They were imagining themselves as being the really important person. This rich guy that is holding this great banquet and having all these influential guests. He would have already had them hooked on, ready, ready to see themselves. And then he introduces the major catastrophe. They all refuse to come. Oh, and they give various reasons. I bought a field, first one says, and I must go see it. Second one, I bought oxen. Now I have to go examine them, test them, prove them, is that idea. He's going to go use them. By the way, it would have taken about 100 acres of land to, to need five yoke of oxen. Five pairs of oxen. That would have taken about 100 acres of land worth having that many oxen. Verse 20, I've married a wife. Some commentators focus on the pitiful nature of these excuses, and it's true, they are pitiful. But notice that on the surface, none of these excuses is bad. None of them are, are, are really all that bad. I mean, buying a field, there's nothing wrong with that. Having oxen, nothing wrong with that. Having enough field to need five yoke of oxen, no, nothing wrong with that either. Marrying a wife, nothing wrong with that. These are all in and of themselves not bad things. These are all good things. These are all lawful things. These are all normal, everyday course of life things. But they're all terrible excuses because of the preparations. You see, so much time had transpired. They had already agreed to come, and all these excuses were just lame. They were just that, just excuses. They weren't reasons. They were excuses. None of them hold up. You see... They had plenty of chances to change their schedules and give priority to their obligation, but they didn't. They just flat out didn't want to care. Didn't want to come. They didn't care. They didn't care about this guy. They didn't care about all his effort. They didn't care about all the time that he spent preparing this feast. They don't care about him. In fact, they've decided that he wasn't in anymore, and they all shunned him. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. Wouldn't you become angry? And said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and there's still room. Rather than seeking to get back in, this master seeks a different way forward. He invites the outsiders to come into his feast. He tells the servant to go to the rough parts of town. Gather whoever you can find. It doesn't matter whether they look the part. It doesn't matter whether they're ready. It doesn't matter if they haven't made lots of preparations to come. I don't care. I just need this house filled. I just want the seats filled. I don't want this food to go to waste. I don't want my gracious provision to go to waste because some people didn't want to come. Bring in whoever you have to bring in so that I can share this feast. You know, it's the same group that Jesus tells the Pharisee that he should be inviting Back in verse 13, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. It's these folks that the master invites. You think he might be trying to say something? He realizes it's better to share his bountiful feast with those who will partake and enjoy it than to let it go to waste because of the rejection of those who didn't want to come anyway. So he tells the servant, go get more. The servant says, I already have. There's still room. I love that, by the way. That's initiative right there. He already knows what his master is going to say, and he's, he's already done it. He knows the next step. Okay, they're rejecting it, so I'm going to bring some folks in. 
I know my master wants to share that. This is too much work for my master. So I'm going to make sure that I get this house as full as I can. And he, by the time he comes to the master, he has already taken the initiative to go beyond the original command, to take the spirit of the command and take it the next step. I love that part about the servant. But there's more room. Still there's more room. Still there are empty chairs, empty tables. Still there is food that is to go to waste. So what is he to do? Verse 23, the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. He tells the servant, go out even further. Find whoever you can. Go out of the city if you have to. Go out onto the, the roads leading to other towns and bring people in. Compel them to come in. Do whatever you have to do to get them to accept the invitation. If they need clothes to wear to the banquet, provide them clothes. If they need a way to get to the banquet, you bring them here. Whatever it takes, whatever it might happen to necessitate, you do whatever it takes to compel them to come in. That doesn't mean to use violence and it doesn't mean to change the nature of the invitation, to water it down so that they'll be willing to accept. But what it does mean is that you're going to use every means to beg and to plead and to compel people to come in, come into my feast. It seems obvious, but it needs to be stated. This parable gives us a picture of God. I want you to notice first, God makes preparations. God we think of God as responding to man's sin. We think of it as man sins, and then God says, all right, now I have to come up with a plan B. But the great thing about God is that he's already been preparing. This was his plan A. Man sin, that, that was plan A. God has been making preparations. Just as the host had prepared for months and months for this feast, God has been preparing from time immemorial for his messianic feast. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this in his commentary on Luke. The gospel contains a full supply of everything that sinners need in order to be saved. We are all naturally starving, empty, helpless, and ready to perish. Forgiveness of all sin and peace with God. Justification of the person and sanctification of the heart. Grace, by the way, and glory in the end are the gracious provision which God has prepared for the wants of our souls. There is nothing that sin-laden hearts can wish or weary heart consciousness require which is not spread before men in the rich abundance of Christ. God has made every preparation. And if you're only willing, if you're only willing to come to the feast, all of it is ready for you. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing that you can do. God has done it all. There's nothing wanting on God's part for the salvation of men. Ralph continues, if man is not saved, the fault is not on God's side. The Father is ready to receive all who come to him by Christ. The Son is ready to cleanse all from their sins who apply to him by faith. The Spirit is ready to come to all who ask for him. There is an infinite willingness in God to save man if man is only willing to be saved. You see, this isn't, this isn't a... It's not a potluck. Let me me speak in Baptist terms. It's not a potluck. You don't bring your own casserole. God's provided everything. And if you're just willing to come, if you're just willing to come, he's ready for you. He's made all the preparations. The problem is that while God makes preparations, men make excuses. Even with such a willing God who has endured great expense and expended great effort 
to offer his salvation. His gracious offer is countered with lame excuses. Oh, the men were willing to come to the feast. Instead, they're preoccupied with everyday things, normal life, nothing special, just junk, trading the eternal for the temporal, the valuable for the worthless, the important for the trivial. How long will men reject God's gracious offer of salvation and settle for things that don't last, cannot save, cannot fulfill? How long will you, O sinful man, sinful woman, how long will you make excuses and shun the God who lovingly offers you the bounty of His grace? Repent and accept His offer before it's rescinded. It has to be so much greater, the population of hell, that just refuses to come if if infidelity and immorality have slain their thousands, and I bet lame excuses have slain their tens of thousands. God makes his preparations and men just make excuses. So the servant compels men, just as the servant in the story makes every possible effort to fill the hall with guests, just as he is dedicated to seeing his master's banquet filled. So the servant, capital S, moves within men's hearts to compel them to come. We can beg, we can plead, we can argue, we can offer, but only he can compel. He uses us as his children, his servants, to share his gospel with any and all who will hear it. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who from Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Paul's heart here is that we have a ministry of reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God. And so it is his duty, it is his responsibility, it is his driving passion to present the gospel so that men will come to him. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. It's the same Paul that says to the Jew, I'm become as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those not under the law, I become as one not under the law. Though I'm under the law of Christ to win those who are not under the law. He goes on to say, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. I don't care what it takes, whatever the effort is, whatever the motivation happens to be that gets you off the couch, off the pew, off of your way of living and that gets you living for Christ. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Are we willing to do whatever it takes for our master? Are we willing to go out on the highways and the hedges? Are we willing to compel men to come to Christ? Or are we just sitting by letting someone else do it because they're paid to and they're professionals? Or because they've got that gift and I don't? Or because it's really hard? Or because it's just not comfortable? It's not easy? You see, the good news in all of this is that God changes hearts. What's interesting about this story, this parable, is that it is at the same time a rebuke of the Pharisees and it's an invitation to repentance. It's telling them you're the ones who have been invited and have rejected the invitation, but it's also telling them it's not too late. You see, there's a time 
verse 24, when the master says, it's too late. This is both a call to recognize sin and a call to repent with it, with the promise that God will change you in the process. The same Jesus who is despised and rejected by men uh, takes those who are despised and rejected among men and changes them to their poor, their crippled, their lame, their blind. And yes, sometimes he makes physical changes. Sometimes he heals. Sometimes he, he gives sight to the blind. Sometimes he heals the crippled or the lame. Sometimes he raises the dead. But also often the, the healing that comes is more than just physical healing. It is a spiritual healing. It's a woman, your sins have, are forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. It's not just physical. God changes men's hearts. He takes them from their wretched estate and alters their very being. He takes their sin that has wrecked them and gives them life, gives them his righteousness as a gift. He is the one that is bidding to come. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Do you see the change? Scarlet to white. Filthiness sinfulness changed to righteousness. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You know who would have been the labor? The heavy laden? The poorest, the dejected, those who were out, not those who were in. Those who were in had someone to carry their burdens for them. Ironically, they're the ones that end up carrying the burden after all. But Jesus is the one saying, come, come who labor, come who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, the ones who cannot do for themselves. You, you come to me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their abject poverty before God, because until you become poor until you have absolutely nothing to give God and are completely destitute before him, you cannot receive anything that he offers. You're too busy carrying your own junk. The spirit and the bride say come. By the way, the bride's the church. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You see, God changes men's hearts if you're willing to come. Father, you do the work in us that you need to do. In this time of invitation, you've called us to come. So, Lord, may we come. If we don't know you, anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would bid them come to the cross and receive your offer of salvation, to trust Christ. For those who know you, I pray that you bid them to come closer, walk with you more intimately, and to take that love for you and turn it into action, into obedience into the service of one who's been redeemed and whose driving passion is to see others know that same redemption. Lord, you bid us come. So, Lord, we now come. In Jesus' name, amen.